Hello, we're back again, sliding into your feed with another week of regulatory news from around the world. My name is James Paniki. I'm an MLEX editor with our Asia-Pacific team, and it's great to have your company again today on the MLEX podcast. In just under 10 minutes from now, we'll be having a chat with our Southeast Asia correspondent, Jet Damaso Santos, who recently sat down with a senior official from the Philippines National Privacy Commission. What emerged from that encounter offers a fascinating insight into penalties, deterrence and the prospect of court challenges. First up, though, let me put something to you. When was the last time that you asked a smart speaker to connect you to your favourite radio station? And what's your relationship with your smart television set and how it presents you with programming? This very conversation is now underway in Australia, where commercial radio broadcasters are concerned that big tech, whether through Amazon's Echo, Apple's Siri or Google's Assistant, is fast becoming an intermediary between the listener and the station. Now, is that a problem? Well, it certainly could become one. It's all about the path that the speaker might choose to take you down when directing you to content, the data it may want to collect along the way, and the antitrust concerns that underpin the speaker's operations, which are very much MLEX's bread and butter. This discussion has ushered in the next phase of Australia's arguably revolutionary approach to a media code, a media code that has forced, or at least has threatened to force, both Facebook and Google to pay for the news content they use. That code is now being reviewed, and commercial radio has chosen this moment to put forward its concerns. If anyone can make sense of all of this, it's our Sydney-based senior reporter, Laurel Henning, who joins me now. So, uh, Laurel, firstly, give me a bit of a background on this review and these latest submissions. Sure, James. So we saw a stack of submissions published by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, or ACCC, uh, just earlier this month. This latest round of submissions are part of a five-year inquiry into digital platform services that the regulator has undertaken, which itself... That inquiry itself is an offshoot of an earlier report which was published in 2019. So this is obviously an area that the ACCC and we've reported on has been looking at for quite some time. And we're just getting to the stage now where at this interim stage of the five-year report, we're going to see recommendations for potential regulatory changes from the ACCC. And that's what it's seeking views on or was seeking views on earlier this year. And now we're seeing those views come to light. So the ACCC has now had feedback basically on suggestions for measures to address the concerns it has over anti-competitive self-preferencing, over barriers to entry in digital platform services, bargaining imbalances, and insufficient consumer protections. And the the solutions to those things could be anything from changes to Australian merger laws, we could see more codes of conduct that specifically target digital platforms. It's all to come, but this is what we've seen responses to this month. Okay, and what about Australia's media bargaining code? Just remind us what it is and why it's getting a mention now. Yeah, our listeners might be thinking, surely that's that's done and dusted. I mean, it is a piece of legislation that's under review, but the, the development of it is, is, is done, surely. I mean, this was something the ACCC was working on in 2020. It got bipartisan support from Parliament in early 2021. But importantly, no digital platform was ever designated or named under that piece of legislation that was designed to force initially 
Google and Meta platforms to pay for the news content that they host. But without that naming of them, all it really acts as is sort of a warning stick to force these platforms to come to the negotiating table and create these licensing agreements with news publishers, which they have done, but not necessarily with every news publisher that exists in Australia. So now what we're seeing in these latest submissions is not only do commercial radio stations and commercial TV broadcasters such as Channel 9, 10 and 7 want the media code to apply to them, which it would if the platforms were designated because it would just apply across news uh, media, they want measures that specifically target smart TVs and smart speakers. And now that's the key to understand where this conversation is going because, uh, you know, the injection of the of the notion of smart TV, smart speakers in this context is an interesting one. What is so important about that um, type of technology? I think let's take a little step back and look at some of the numbers that um, the industry group Commercial Radio Australia actually put in their submission to the ACCC. So they said that Apple's Siri dominates the voice assistant market with 70% of Australian consumers of voice-operated personal assistants on smartphones, smart speakers or other devices using Apple's Siri. So that's across that voice-operated market. And then if we zone in or zoom in on smart speakers, then Google, they say, dominates that market with 92% of smart speaker users owning a Google smart speaker. So As the use of smart speakers or voice-activated devices grows, obviously advertising in this space becomes more important as well. And that's why these commercial broadcasters of radio, of TV, want any code of conduct which is potentially developed or any measures developed that could apply to ad tech or to app marketplaces They want those to apply to speakers and TVs as well. Now, with smart TVs, that's really to do with self-preferencing. So a good example here is if a user of a smart TV searches for a TV show, they should, broadcasters say, be taken to the local broadcaster if that channel is showing that program for free rather than automatically through an Apple or Google device be taken to an Apple TV Plus or Google Play Movies site that requires payment for the same show. And this is uh, a key issue, isn't it, for users because they would simply ask their smart device, they'd say, Siri, can I watch the most recent instalment of, you know, whatever program and the TV, the smart TV or the smart Uh, speaker would bring up the relevant program, but the user doesn't necessarily think about, you know, where it's going, where the device is sending the user to get that programming. No, you would expect that most users would accept the result given to them by by their smart device. So if it's a paid um, program, that user may then decide, oh, I'm not going to pay $5.99 or whatever it is to watch this movie and they move on and that could really affect the uh, listings or ratings for the broadcaster. Okay, so that brings us to recent developments in Australia. What happened this week? Yeah, so those earlier submissions were published a couple of weeks ago and then we saw just this week um, new submissions, about 19 uh, new submissions published by the ACCC this time including uh, Meta Platforms, Mozilla, 
the the, the browser um, provider, and Australia's privacy regulator, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner or OAIC. And I think really it was the strongest submission we've seen since these digital platform service inquiries have been going on or being carried out by the ACCC by the OAIC, sort of suggesting mission creep or regulatory creep, which is really something that while we we may have asked them about, they've sort of shied away from talking about so far. But what's clear is that they're saying, okay, if you think the ACCC that a way to increase competition among digital platform services is to open up the data flows, not only between existing platforms, but between new entrants, well, then you need to really consider the privacy implications of that increased flow of data. And we need to be consulted on that probably. Also, why not do that under existing structures, such as Australia's consumer data right, which already applies to the financial industry in some part, and the energy industry. And that is a piece of legislation over which the ACCC and the OAIC share sort of monitoring and enforcement powers. So so why not put it there? And then the OAIC has a clear role from the get-go. These are all questions to be answered as this report and uh, the ACCC's response um, is developed over coming months. Laurel, it has been great talking to you today. Just a fascinating topic of discussion. Thank you for covering it for us and let's talk again very soon. Thank you, James. And that was MLEC senior reporter Laurel Henning speaking to us from Sydney, Australia. Laurel's analysis of these developments is well worth a read and it just so happens it's now all available for you to enjoy even if you're not an MLEX subscriber. It's just a few clicks away. Go to mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com and click on the intriguingly named News Hub tab. That's your one-stop shop of MLEX editorial content, news analysis and indeed an archive for this very humble weekly podcast. It's all there. You'll also see on our front page a link to our Russian sanctions special report prepared by our anti-bribery and corruption team. It's a big operation, and if you need a strong narrative thread to make sense of the flurry of measures imposed on Russia following the invasion of Ukraine, this is the one piece of journalism you'll need to download. It's free and can be yours right now to read, mlexmarketinsight.com. Coming up, why consistency and transparency may be as much of a deterrent for privacy law violations as big penalties. And need I remind you that you can subscribe to MLEX's weekly podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. And just a quick housekeeping note before I forget, next week's podcast will appear in your feed not on Friday, but on the following Monday. There are some public holidays coming up in the UK, so our London-based marketing team that uh, helps us get this podcast to you every week will be taking a much-deserved break. So Monday, June the 6th is when we'll pop up in your feed once again. And we're scheduled to take a look at the global corruption scandal involving Glencore, the controversial multinational commodities and mining company. So it should be an interesting conversation with the MLEX team that has been following that case. Okay, to Southeast Asia now and the long-awaited circular on administrative fines in the Philippines, which is expected to include tougher penalties for violations of the country's 2012 privacy law. But will the fines be high enough to make a difference? 
And how is this issue panning out in other parts of the region? The person who can answer all of these questions is MLEX's Jet Damaso Santos, who covers Southeast Asia from Jakarta. And she joins us right now. Jet, it's great to speak to you again. And maybe let's start with a quick overview of privacy-related developments in the region. What do we need to know? Hi, James. So, yes, um, in Thailand, the data protection law will finally be enforced from June 1. This is after it's been postponed twice due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, In the Philippines, which is uh, celebrating its Privacy Awareness Week this week, The six-year-old Privacy Commission is just now preparing to release a circular on administrative fines. And then in Indonesia, uh, Parliament this week resumed discussions on its personal data protection bill. Uh, This has been stalled over disagreements on the proposed structure of the regulator. Uh, So far, though, there are no indications that this issue will be resolved soon. Okay, so there are clearly a few developments bubbling away there. Now, the issue of penalties is always central to these discussions, right? Because without adequate penalties, the deterrence effect is lost. Uh, So what kind of fines could companies face in Thailand and the Philippines? Right. So it's interesting because the data protection laws of these two countries actually contain both civil and criminal penalties. First, in Thailand, uh, a data controller who violates the law can face up to uh, 5 million baht in fines. That's just under $150,000 or a one-year jail term or even both. But actually in Thailand, even if it uh, if the law gets implemented on June 1st, we won't be seeing these penalties anytime soon. Uh, the government has already said it would relax enforcement of penalties for another year to give businesses time to adjust. This means uh, we might see companies investigated for alleged violations, but even if these are proven, it would likely get off with a warning first. So that's in Thailand. What this means is that um, in the region after Singapore, the Philippine Privacy Commission could be the second regulator in Southeast Asia to start imposing administrative penalties or financial penalties. Um, So in the latest draft of the Philippine Circular, uh, there are penalties ranging from 0.25 to 3% of a company's gross annual income. This is in the year preceding the violation. But the penalties are capped at um, 5 million pesos, also just under $100,000. This is for a single act. So while this ceiling is actually higher than uh, the criminal financial penalties in the Philippine law, so the criminal penalty financial penalties state that you can be jailed up to seven years or fined up to two million pesos or about forty thousand dollars the commission argues that with administrative fines you are targeting companies so they can afford that but with criminal financial penalties uh, these are directed to individuals okay so these fines it could be argued are relatively small when compared to the numbers that we're seeing in the u.s and europe where the fines for privacy breaches are considerable, and that brings us back to the deterrence question. Uh, Can these penalties, in fact, make a difference when it comes to deterring that kind of behaviour? You're right. Uh, Some data privacy advocates in the Philippines are actually disappointed at the size of the fines. In fact, the original draft of the Philippine circular had higher percentages, um, ranging from 1% to 5% of the annual gross income, with no ceiling. Uh, But after the first round of public consultations with businesses, this was softened. Um, So when I talked to the Philippine Deputy Privacy Commissioner Leandro Aguirre, I met up with him in Manila. 
he said that, well, first, they don't want to be an outlier among Philippine regulators in terms of the amount of fines they impose. Um, We don't see fines amounting to millions of dollars in the Philippines. In fact, even in the region, Singapore doesn't impose huge fines yet. We rarely see financial penalties above 100,000 Singapore dollars for data privacy violations. Uh, Although this will change uh, in Singapore after October 1st because the government has said that it will start imposing higher penalties of up to 10% of turnover. But aside from this, uh, Commissioner Aguirre also said they want to come up with a figure that would incentivize companies So they want companies to realize that instead of risking, say, a $100,000 fine, they can just spend it on improving their data protection systems. The good thing about the Philippine approach is that it's just in a circular. This means if they see that, you know, it's not enough, if they want to increase it, they can easily amend it or issue a new one later. By contrast, you know, Thailand's penalties are written in the law. So if they want to change it, uh, they will have to amend the entire thing, which is what Singapore did. Okay, so this also raises the question of whether criminal offences should be part of the solution. You mentioned earlier in the context of uh, Thailand that uh, criminal offences were indeed uh, part of the mix. Uh, Relatively small fines can always be uh, paid, um, but, you know, time in jail, I mean, that's serious enough to create real fear among those planning to disregard the rules, right? Yes, in theory, criminal penalties um, should be scarier. And this was you know, a major point of debate when the Philippine and the Thai laws were being drafted um, in the first place. But in reality, you know, in the Philippines, an extremely slow justice system means we haven't really seen any examples yet. The Philippine Privacy Commission has sent out about three or four recommendations for prosecution to the Department of Justice some of these dating back to 2019, but uh, these are also being challenged before the appeals court. So it will likely take several years before any of these cases are decided with finality. Um, Aside from that, critics are actually saying criminal penalties are not effective for data privacy purposes, because the thing with, with criminal prosecution in this case is that they target the individuals, not the corporation. This also means that investigations are more difficult because, you know, how do you determine which person is ultimately um, responsible for a data breach or how many people uh, in the company should be should be prosecuted? So this is why the regulator, the Privacy Commission and their data privacy advocates themselves are looking forward to uh, the circular on administrative fines. Now, will they work at the level that uh, they will be issued? The answer, of course, always is, it depends. Um, For multinationals, if they're already compliant with privacy regulations around the world, this might just be a small development to take note of, right? So it's not exactly a huge regulatory risk, um, and it might even cost less than the reputational impact of a massive data breach. But for subsidiaries, and actually even relatively large local companies, a 100,000 fine can be pretty substantial. So I talked to the data privacy officer of one listed company, and in his words, it's enough to get me fired. Yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, yeah. he said that, but he actually said that he is looking forward to these fines because it can help him convince subsidiaries that they don't, you know, some of their subsidiaries don't necessarily process a lot of data, so they don't feel, they don't take um, compliance seriously. Uh, 
And so this, this circular, he said, will help him do his job better, especially since he said most data privacy initiatives cost less than that, actually. For example, you can set up a microsite for a subsidiary to automate their privacy management processes using you know, existing resources, um, but you know, it, it might need this extra push to convince uh, a subsidiary to greenlight the project. Um, the third thing uh, is that for these fines to work, it would take consistency and transparency on the part of the privacy regulator. We've seen, th- we've seen this in Singapore. Um, even though they have been imposing relatively small fines, they've been pretty consistent with it. The Personal Data Protection Commission regularly publishes uh, the decisions they've issued each month. Um, and so all of these taken together both educate the companies and incentivize more compliance. And that is actually something the Philippines might struggle with. But but why would the Philippines struggle with something like that? Why couldn't uh, the authorities there manage a system that does bring about this level of consistency and transparency? Um, okay, so first, the Philippine Commission does struggle with uh, limited resources. You know what? They still only have three full-time lawyers. Um, this is supported by contractual workers to help decongest the regulator's caseload, but this is not enough. Um, during the Privacy Week celebrations this week, the new Privacy Commissioner, uh, John Naga, said uh, they received 363 complaints last year. They sent out 147 notices to explain um, and issued 129 decisions and resolutions. So that's a lot for three lawyers. They've been trying to fix it, uh, but the Philippine election has just concluded and so there was an election ban, or there still is an election ban, so they can't... Um, fix that quite yet. And Commissioner Aguirre admits they do have a lot of pending cases. They do need to find a way to keep up with the growing caseload. So there is a plan to restructure and hire more people, but that's a relatively long-term project. The other issue um, is that this circular on administrative fines in the Philippines has a vulnerable legal basis. Um, This means we will likely see someone take the commission to court over this. Actually, the Privacy Commission is expecting this. It's actually the main reason it's taken them this long to come up with um, the fines. So uh, the problem is that the power to impose fines is not clearly written in the Philippine Data Privacy Act. The commission had to first consult with legal experts to you know, find justification to find legal basis for them to impose fines in order for them to effectively function as a quasi-judicial authority, which is what they are according to the law. But, you know, we do expect a legal challenge. They expect a legal challenge. And if that happens, the court can take years to come up with a final decision and can even um, suspend their ability to use this circular in the meantime. The other fix, of course, is a legal amendment. uh, And that's actually already been proposed but it can also take several years in the Philippines. So with all this, it'll probably still be you know, a while before the impact of these fines are felt. Jet, as always, it comes down to time, agency, funding, uh, money, but it was great talking uh, as always. Thank you for your coverage of those issues uh, in Southeast Asia. Let's uh, catch up again soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you again, James. Jet Tomazo Santos is MNEX's Southeast Asia correspondent covering regulatory affairs from Jakarta, although she was in the Philippines when she spoke with the Deputy Privacy Commissioner. 
Her analysis of these developments is at our website and ready for you to read. The address is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. And click on the News Hub tab for the very latest reporting and analysis from our team of journalists around the globe. Also, as I mentioned earlier, the latest MLEX special report is out and ready for you to read. It looks into the rollout of sanctions targeting Russia over its invasion of Ukraine, and it tells a very interesting story indeed. And with that, it is time for me to decamp. I hope you'll be able to tune in again in just over a week's time. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now.